This is Terrible Parables, a podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, in which a Bible scholar, a pastor, and an anxious Christian look for some good news and passages of Scripture that are difficult, frightening, or particularly, well, terrible. I'm your host, Callie Yee, and in a little bit, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Todd Brewer and Brian Jarrell. Join us as we find that sometimes the spooky things that go bump in the night are just figments of our imaginations. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So, (laughs) guys, what makes this parable so terrible? All right, I, I, let me tell you a story, okay? You this have is, a story? I have a story. This is the top five embarrassing moments in my pastoral ministry so far <laughs> uh, as an ordained pastor. Um, and uh, it's a story about a time I tried to play the Good Samaritan. You ready for this? <laughs> okay. I, I want to know what numbers three through one are, if this is number four. I'm just whatever. honored that I get to hear at least one of them. <laughs> You'll have to wait for, for a later podcast to get the, the other four. Hmm. Uh, so uh, <laughs> anyway, I get a phone call one day. It's on Saturday, I think. And a uh, guy on the phone says, hey, I'm a Christian, but um, I'm hitchhiking and I got stuck in town 
and uh, I uh, I can't get up to this other town. I've got a guy coming to pick me up tomorrow. I just need some help to get through the night. I'm stuck here, and uh, I could use whatever help you can give. And I say, okay, I will I will do what I can because in my head I'm thinking of the Good Samaritan. Right? You will be the Good Samaritan. I will be the Good Samaritan. So uh, I get in the car and I pick up a friend because you know you do things in pairs just to make sure everybody's happy and safe. Oh yes, and us girls. I go That's and find good. this guy. He meets me at a McDonald's. Okay, like right off the freeway. And I take one look at him, and automatically, like I know, oh, I think I, I'm being grifted now, and mm. and I think this guy is just, you know, I think he's going to take advantage of me. But I'm playing the good Samaritan. It's not my place to judge. Get him in the car. <laughs> says his introduces himself. We chit chat for a little bit. Use hot wire. Find a cheap hotel room for him one night. Put it on the church debit card. Give him twenty bucks and drop him at the hotel where there is next door a golden corral, which is all you can eat buffet. I say, hey man, have your have yourself eat all eat your fill, and this should get you through till tomorrow. And he said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So I go home, and uh, the next day I get the email bill for the hotel, and it comes after. And this hotel was not expensive; it was enough to get a roof over. It said it was forty bucks, but the bill was sixty bucks. I'm like, why is this bill so expensive? I paid forty bucks for it. I look at the receipt: hotel room forty dollars, adult entertainment pay per view twenty dollars. <gasps> oh no! The guy ordered pornography on my church debit card. Oh no! I did couldn't you, believe it. Did you tell the vestry as a like? Hi. Um, so this <laughs> happened. Yeah. Or did they have let's, like questions? Let's just say church leadership can be very gracious in some occasions, especially when the pastor volunteers to put $20 back in the church coffers to offset the mistake oh of letting my. someone else stay on the did church. Did your bishop ever find out this story? I don't think the bishop ever found out about this story. Um, but uh, it was a learning lesson for sure. And, and the longer I've been in ministry, though, the more time I've realized every single minister I know has like that story where they've tried to play the good, which is just a way of making me say I'm not that bad, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. But every minister, I think, has a story about, yeah, we look at the Good Samaritan parable. We want to be the Good Samaritan, and we try to help people. But the reason I think this parable, it can be so terrible, is that when people try to be the Good Samaritan, it can really blow up in your face. Mm. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, it's a really hard thing to do to play the Good Samaritan. And um, when you're in the middle of this parable, I think, if you don't understand the fuller context of what Jesus is saying, you can really uh, empty yourself in a burnout, negative, hard, embarrassing way, mm -hmm. uh, trying to fulfill a law that maybe is impossible to fill. What do you think, Todd? So I have a different story to tell. Okay, okay. Um, this is actually the text, uh, the only, the single text, which is to blame, and I use that word, specifically for why I went off to like do further studies after seminary and go get a PhD. Really? Yeah. This is the text. Oh, um, inspiration. I, it's no, so funny. It was the other way around. <laughs> the other the, way around. This, this was, this was not an inspiring parable to me that said, you know, I'm going to go and study the great things of God, uh, because of this parable. It was the other way around. It was, I was bothered by this parable and wanted to find solutions. Wow. Bothered by this. You yeah. mean to tell me, Todd, that like helping and loving your neighbor um, bothered you? I mean, is that what we're talking about here? You went to get a PhD so you didn't have to help other people. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Way to apply the like least charitable interpretation. Thank I you. I only do that because I know it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So what happened was I had just taken, I'm in seminary, first year of seminary in the books. And my last class was on Paul's letter to the Romans. It was like a whole class devoted to Romans. 
In, in Romans 10, Paul says, the law is not of faith, for the law says the one who does these things will live by them. And, you know, had a great time, loved the class. It was fantastic. Taught by Paul Zoll. Uh, so, yeah. Blessed it was, be his name. It, it was a <laughs> fantastic time. And then three weeks later, I am on the road to preach in uh, at a local church. And the gospel text is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. So I have Romans ringing in my ears, and I come to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and when this man says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, you know, what do the commandments say? Yeah. He recites the commandments, and then Jesus says, do this and you will live. Mm-hmm. So what we had here, as, as I observed it, was uh, Jesus citing Leviticus 18.5 mm-hmm. and Paul citing Leviticus 18.5. The one who does these things will live by them. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. Uh, summations of the law... Paul is citing it negatively, and Jesus is citing it positively. Oh, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. It meant it like it, it. There was a like malfunction in my brain. How can the founder of Christianity, namely Jesus, say something that that his that you know the very first kind of convert or most important convert, etc., author of half of our New Testament? How could they conflict on this very kind of? basic essential question that would make me so nervous i yeah i don't know if it'd make me go get my phd on it but like (laughs) (laughs) that definitely would make me like consider my life but like in in all honesty though todd like i'm glad you said something because i think a lot of readers are going to come to this text and say this is a terrible parable because we've all been taught if you've been part of a reasonable church that like you're only saved through faith and not works and yet the person who does these things is justified. Like that's part of this text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also not just Romans. It, Paul cites it in Galatians too. Like this is a pretty mm, yeah. important thing for Paul in his faith works contrast, yes. his law versus uh, faith contrast. And so after your PhD work, um, you're going to solve all of this for all of us today though, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> all my worries like are going to go question. away. That's right. If I say no, my PhD is worthless. And if I say <laughs> uh, yes, then I am arrogant SOB. Uh, so. Well, I, I retract the question then, because you are neither of those things. You're very smart, and you're not vet, that arrogant. Yeah. So I have some helpful thoughts, as, is what I would say, and have read some people who have likewise struggled with this question. Hmm. Um, the other reason why I would say this parable is so terrible, as putting on my kind of scholar's hat, is that it, this parable is just like, it is abused by the church. Mm. Uh, like that, that, maybe that's not quite the right word. It's, it's just made uh, terrible by its interpretation, w- which is to say it's allegorized out the wazoo mm. by mm. everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's not just like one person. It's like Origen, Irenaeus, Augustine, Luther. They all take this parable as this kind of grand allegory that has very little to do with what Luke actually says about it. So, like, the traveler is humanity writ large. Jerusalem is paradise. Jericho is the fallen world. The Levite is the law of Moses. The two denarii are are, um, the old and new covenants. The inn is the church. The innkeeper is either Paul, uh, the apostle, or the Holy Spirit. I would not have gotten that. So they, so they, um, it's a lot of allegories to keep track. Yeah. And I'm not like against allegory, uh, you know, like, I think. 
Jesus does allegory. He does allegory with the parable of the sower. He does allegory with the parable of the dragnet. He does allegory with the parable of the uh, tenants. Um, but not every parable is a grand allegory that needs some secret key for Gnostic, we might even say, to try to understand and interpret it correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, w- so what so often happens with the parables, and sorry, I will get off my uh, high horse in a little bit. What often happens with, with the parables is that basically they take them and because of the kind of metaphorical language or, or nature of the parable, what they do is they kind of push it through this sieve um, of their own kind of theological presuppositions to come to the correct answer. And this is a famous example of where people do this. And I'll add to that too. The other problem with this parable is it's so familiar. Like so many of us, mm-hmm. maybe in our, our home cities, the, the hospital is called Good Samaritan Hospital or mm-hmm. something like that. Or there's a parish, right? Like a, a church, the Church of the Good Samaritan in your neighborhood. Um, if you're from a more evangelical background, you might know of the somewhat large and well-known uh, ministry called Samaritan's Purse, which is a international relief organization. And so, you know, one of the challenges is, is if you try to come to this parable and kind of give it some some nuance and some context and some cultural understanding, and you begin to shift away from the the modern sort of thou shalt help thy neighbor Good Samaritan framework, mm. you know, that's a really unpopular thing to do, and you're going to get a lot of pushback. So we'll see if we're brave enough to tackle this parable. <laughs> I mean, this parable, this parable is, in some senses, there is a direct line between this parable and like the foundation of Western liberal democracy. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. And to drop a Seinfeld reference in, the very last episodes, what law do they transgress that sends them to jail? They transgress the Good Samaritan law. So they see someone who's mugged and they just watch and make fun of him. And that's what does them in. No kidding. They're in jail because they weren't good Samaritans. So, sorry, obligatory Seinfeld reference. Mm. Uh, Is it really Mockingbird if someone doesn't drop a Seinfeld reference eventually? At some point, there's a counter. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, what makes this parable actually not that bad? So the framing of the parable is, as always, really significant, right? Mm -hmm. So Jesus doesn't tell this, you know, just because. He tells this to a guy who asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mm -hmm. And the kind of key phrase that I justifiably latch onto, particularly given Luke's language elsewhere, is seeking to justify himself. Mm. Luke uses language of justification and he does so quite intentionally. Uh, the other place where it shows up in Luke's gospel is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yeah, then they pray to go to the temple together. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And so anytime this language shows up in Luke's gospel, it sends up blinkers that this is actually, you know, very important. Right? Notice it's a, it's the narrator's interjection to the, to the story. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. actually getting the voice of Luke here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so... He's reading into the motivations of the question, seeking to justify himself. And so Jesus responds in kind, namely by taking the demands of the law as, uh, as they were understood and upping the register of them to the, to the degree of impossibility. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that uh, even this Samaritan, uh, both in what he does as well as as well as who he is, is embodying love of neighbor in such a way that it would have been understood and received as an impossibility. This is mm. this is the parabolic equivalent of go and sell everything you have. Yeah. Um, mm. And it's told in such a way that. To, to basically corner the man and his motivations for uh, self-justification and, and to, say to, you can't. to reveal th- their impossibility. Yeah. That following the law as, uh, as properly understood here by Jesus yeah. leads one to a, a degree of, of impossibility, if not despair. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because if you look at the, the context, uh, like when and how we have, I think, that's the first piece of important context. The the guy is asking Jesus this question to try to narrow down the framework of who he has to love. Mm. Um, he's trying to say, okay, well, who just is my neighbor? So I know who isn't my neighbor, so I don't have to love them. And and so I think that's that's helpful context because um, there there is there does seem to be this sort of hammer that goes down on this guy when he tries to narrow the framework of who who he's responsible for loving. The other thing that's really interesting about the context here is what comes directly after the Good Samaritan in, in Luke's gospel? It's the par- it's parable, the, the situation, the life event story. of Mar- story, yeah, of, of Mary and Martha oh. hosting Jesus uh, uh, and his disciples when they come through town. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is, is, is in that parable, the short version is uh, these two sisters are hosting Jesus and presumably uh, a whole caravan of people traveling with him, maybe up to 80 people. And uh, they come to um, Mary Martha's house, and one of these two sisters is um, frantically preparing to host 80 people, as she was expected to do, not just by the society at large, but by the the law itself, receiving mm. these guests, taking care of them. Yeah. And so she's sitting there, and she's in the kitchen, and she's cooking, she's keeping the fire going, she's milking the cow, she's running, 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 frantically trying to serve Jesus in this particular way, this very practical way of serving him. But her sister is sitting at Jesus's feet and just sitting there like learning, which mm. is a pretty big deal for a woman to be in that space to begin with. As a disciple. As a disciple, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, so let's acknowledge here that the, 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 there's a woman disciple happening right there at Jesus's feet. But but what's remarkable is when the, the one sister comes out and says, hey, Jesus, my sister, I need help. Make my sister get up and work. Jesus actually says, your sister's chosen the better thing. So, so when you wrap it all together, what's really remarkable is it looks like in this one parable, you have a story of someone who is justified and doing the right thing by serving and helping other people. Yeah. But then in the very next thing that happens in, um, in Luke's gospel, the person who is serving and trying to help other people is given a very light, warm-hearted rebuke. And so I, I think there's more to this parable than just some sort of ethical understanding of helping other people. I think there's something going on here that's that's different, and the context of Mary and Martha following this, Luke doesn't want us to walk away from this parable thinking, um, you can gain eternal life if you mm. are the good Samaritan. Right. Those points are just so helpful for you guys to make because... When I read this parable, I mean, I try to understand what he's getting at, but also my brain does this thing where it really likes to focus on the law, Um, and that's my OCD um, and religious whatever, but when I read this, I feel like, especially when it comes to, like, the homeless population or helping my neighbor, that, like, if I 
don't help them, then I don't know. Like, that's it for me. Like, mm. like I'm going to hell or... So when you're in a city... Yes. Right. And you see someone with a sign. Yeah. That does something to you differently than it might for other people. Yes. Like, thank you. Yeah. When, when I see someone with a sign, it kind of makes me feel guilty because I see that and I want to help them. But there's something within my mental health and my OCD that stops me from helping them because like germs are hard for me. And so like it stops me from helping. It's one of the things I, I take away from this text is really powerful is the gift that's given for the man. So this is the second parable we've recorded um, that has something to do with money. So you'll notice there were two denarii that were given. And that, that two denarii, that's like two days wages. So imagine um, maybe a good analog for our own time would be, here's 200 bucks. Let him stay here for a couple of nights to recover. And if he needs longer, I'll pay more. Mm. I don't always have 200 bucks that I can just drop to help somebody in a time of need. My church is very good. They give me a discretionary fund. So thankfully that's changed some in my life. But there have been times in my life where I feel powerless to help. Mm. And so I sit there wondering, you know, is God judging me because I'm not helping this yeah. person? Or, But at the same time, I'm wrestling with the powerlessness I have to save or help anyone in this situation yeah, exactly. like the Good Samaritan we find today. Well, yeah, and and I mean, the use of the Samaritan as the kind of ideal here, I think pushes the bounds and in some senses twists the knife whenever it comes to the how we respond to the need of the world, right? Mm. It, it makes it boundless in many senses, mm. right? And I think when faced with the overwhelming and unrelenting need of the world, this is a parable that says it is impossible. Yeah. Mm, you know, mm. and there's all kinds of things that can be said in terms of for other parts of scripture about how to respond to people in need and all of those sorts of things. But this is the kind of parable that brings you to the nub of it, which is love that has no bounds, extending all the way to people who are your enemies, people who you may not know, etc. And this is meant to do that so that to feel the weight of that. And specifically, it's an impossibility. Yeah. And I think more positively, what it does is it perhaps asks the question of what ways can you help? But that's on the other side of the impossibility. The, mm -hmm. This isn't a go and be the Good Samaritan. If you try to be the Good Samaritan, it'll be impossible. I think it's also that people try to be the Good Samaritan in order to kind of lift a weight off their shoulders or yeah. to make them feel less guilty about themselves. Mm, mm. You mean like trying to justify themselves? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Full circle. Full circle. Yeah. So th so they give to uh, distant sort of, they have distant causes. Well, yeah. I mean, when it, when it comes to um, mission work, I mean, I did, I did mission work in, in high school and throughout some of college and it's much easier to just give money to the organization than it is to actually like go there and and be there. Yeah, I um <laughs> I, I wrote an article for for the site uh, a while ago called um uh, what was it? Uh 
to giving Tuesday indulgences for Black Friday guilt. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was a great mm-hmm. article. And and the basic idea of it is that you know people by virtue of the excess excessive spending uh, on um, around the Christmas season, principally for yourself. Because uh, a lot of the advertising is geared towards be nice to yourself. Oh, for sure. I and definitely bought a lot of things for myself. Right. <laughs> Black Friday. Right, right, right. There's just such good deals. Right. <laughs> she needed a new TV, and that's the best time to buy one. I mean, <laughs> I need a new be. TV, and I'd like one, but yeah. So mm-hmm. now's the time, right? It is. But then Giving Tuesday comes or, comes along, and oh, yeah. all of your favorite charities or charities you hadn't heard of that are very um, – that t- pull at the heartstrings mm. – uh, they hit you at just the moment when you are feeling the most guilty after uh, Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, Giving yeah. Tuesday. It kind of feels like those, um, I don't know if you guys, no one watches cable television anymore, but um, the dog commercials that have like the really sad song In over show. Yes, exactly, that song. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, and it just shows like the sad animals. That's just I just think of that, and I yeah. But it's it's so funny that this works its way down this justification by helping other people. Like, um, one of the hardest books I ever had to read um, was that book "When Helping Hurts." the The point of the book was, you know, when it comes to our giving. Um, we can create problems with our giving as well. That the the mm. amount of effort that it takes to actually help somebody who is, um, to use a overused example, in need of clean water in Africa, how do you help them get clean water without sort of taking away their dignity as human beings by just having them rely on, you know, Christian handouts from America, yeah. right? Or how do you help, you know, the homeless guy? I, it's so easy. Just today at lunch, we walked by a guy with a cardboard sign and, you know, you're thinking to yourself in your head, am I helping this person by giving him five bucks? Am I fueling a drug habit? And am I getting him a sandwich? And all of these very moral issues, you know, it mixes in with our interpretation of this parable because we are really concerned, generally speaking, with helping people who need help. But mm-hmm. the reality is, is I'm not sure we fully are cognizant of just how much help people really need. And and if we were to dive down that rabbit hole to ask how much help people really need, I'm not sure we'd be quite so um, patting ourselves on our back for being good Samaritans. So when you look at this text, what Jesus wants to say is, I, I think what he's trying to say is, is the hammer is falling down on the person asking the question, because here is somebody who is your enemy, who is actually doing better at this than you. Um, that your heroes here are the people who, I think I'll just leave it there. The, the idea here is that the enemy, the theological family enemy, is the hero. Um, and why is he the hero? Uh, because he's loving better. And it's, it's the rug being pulled out of somebody who wants to love less, that his theological enemy is loving more. no shortage of articles on the Good Samaritan, um, as I found on Google and all that jazz. Everyone has an opinion. Yes, it's true. true. Um, Even us. (laughs) (laughs) 
No. Um, but I did find this article article on the Mockingbird website. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's by Sam Bush. Sam and, Bush. Sam. Yeah. Sam the man. And it is titled "Loving Thy Difficult Neighbor." So I'm gonna go ahead and read that for you guys. Loving your neighbor means loving your enemy. But many preachers smooth over this parable to make a broader point about similarity and difference. The neighbor isn't the person who lives next door, but the other. Anyone from the panhandler you pass by on the street to the strangers we avoid eye contact with. The great irony of this non-literal definition of neighbor is that the ones who live next door are often the ones we pass by. Neighbors are the ones most likely to see you with your makeup off and your hair down. They're the people who will hear if you ever raise your voice at your kids, especially if you live in a neighborhood that is thickly settled. A nosy neighbor can know you better than anyone. The less that people know, the better off you are. Thus, under the disguise of privacy, we love our neighbors by turning our backs. Interpreting our neighbor solely as the other gives us permission to ignore those who are closest to us. Love from a distance, after all, is easy. Loving someone with those intricate foibles you are well acquainted is much more difficult. The person who happens to be right in front of you is perhaps the least lovable because you know so much about them. So while we may extend our hand to those who are clearly different from us, we tend to keep our distance from our actual neighbors precisely because they live so close. And then further down in the article, Sam continues... As much as we may resist, we do not get to choose who God places in our lives. The business of having difficult neighbors is precisely the point. The feral cat breeders, the late-night 20-something partiers, and the disgruntled geezers are all perfect illustrations of sinful people who are desperate for love and forgiveness. Their front stoops and backyards are exactly where mercy is made manifest in a tangible way. Our own need for mercy, in fact, is made acute and escape inescapable by the fact that they live next door. Sam the man, bringing it. I love it. I, I feel this acutely because I live in a densely packed area yeah. of a Jersey City. Um, so anytime the weather is nice, mm-hmm. uh, our neighbors behind us play very loud music until 12, 1... Two o'clock. Do they at least have good music taste? No. 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 <laughs> that is the question. They do not have good music taste. What What is their music? It's it's um, it's eighties music. That's good um, taste. Yeah, but no music is good music at one o'clock at night. Whenever that's, that's true. Whenever you that's true. For example, have a sleeping baby whose window oh. faces that side of, oh, the, Eliza. of the house yeah Aww. so the closer you live the more the more the more annoyed you can become mm, uh, yes. we're not talking suburbia here with everyone that has their driveways and all <laughs> those kind of we're like the, the most annoying thing is like the political signs they put out in their front yard Ooh, yes like, but that, that is annoying let's be honest though <laughs> regardless of who you're supporting but not as annoying as uh you know 80s music at midnight 
With a sleeping baby. With a sleeping baby. With a sleeping baby. Yeah. Yeah. In my head, when I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, this isn't in the parable, but I imagine it because the text says that the person who is the traveler is a half dead. It's very like interesting language. It says he's half dead. So in my head, I imagine he's unconscious. That's what I take that to mean. It may not mean that, but in my head, I imagine he may be unconscious. And they throw him over the donkey because he can't walk because he's unconscious and take him to the end and flop him on the bed. And it made me wish that everybody I helped was unconscious. <laughs> What? <laughs> because it's so much easier to help somebody when they're unconscious. And they like can't they talk. can't talk and they can't fight back and they can't and that sounds so rude, but there's some truth to this dark reality that that, you know, um if there if you ever need money from Brian, don't ask him. Just, <laughs> just die in front of his house. <laughs> just, uh, ha- no, they can be unconscious, half dead, not fully dead. But but I mean, joking aside, there's a sense in which the hardest thing about helping other people sometimes is the other people. And there are mm-hmm. folks that you really want to help. Um, you want to help uh, your family member who drinks too much at Thanksgiving. You want to help the cousin who keeps making bad life choices. Uh, you want to help um, the 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 person in your life that you love so dearly, but then they fight you tooth and nail over it, or they don't listen, or they reject. And I think you know when it comes to Sam's article, the people that we love who are closest to us are sometimes the hardest to to help and to love. It's it's a really difficult uh, reality. And I think it goes to underscore the impossibility of oh, what Jesus lays sure. out in front of us. What we have, I think, in this parable is a classic case of the law, right? This is Jesus giving the law at its most classic presentation, which is somebody is trying to weasel their way out of an obligation to love, mm. and Jesus lays down the hammer, mm. Ooh. right? Right. So people people interpret the parable in such a way that um, that makes it easiest for them. So yes, they, they yes. latch on the idea, idea that they're a, a Samaritan. Right. And so mm. what they do is they take the concept of neighbor and apply it only in to the extreme, to the detriment of actual neighbors, mm-hmm. um, because those are the hardest person people to love. And what Jesus is uh, is doing, in order to show its impossibility, isn't an either or. He's actually trying to take the definition of neighbor and expand it to include those around you and those at, like at the fringes. Mm-hmm. And what often happens in parable interpretations is to choose one or the is mostly to choose the latter yeah to choose yeah. the extreme mm-hmm. example uh to the detriment of, of the of the closer example mm-hmm. all because all because we want this parable to comfort us and to, to provide for us some tangible easy thing that we can do um, mm. to justify ourselves to justify ourselves yeah and to make so us can, feel good and thereby using the parable in the exact opposite way that jesus meant yeah, I think that's what we take away from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, I do think, so if I'm preaching this text, I think the law here is important. Where I find the gospel in this text is the original command here is to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you know who did that better than anybody? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and so I think there's a sense in which Christ fulfills the law uh, that the Good Samaritan is intended to. Are you going to bring down. this back to the allegory, Brian? It, I, I don't think it's allegorical. Like I'm not going to say that <laughs> that Christ Himself is the Good Samaritan, but I am very okay. comfortable saying that um, Jesus Christ loves like the Good Samaritan. Yeah. 
Uh, mm. And that whereas I feel like I don't have the resources to love the world, um, I don't have the money, the time, the energy, um, Jesus does, like the risen Jesus does. And so there's a sense in which if you're going to look at this, the best thing you can do to get at the heart of this is to preach law and gospel and to say that you will never be the good Samaritan, but Christ was the good Samaritan to you. Yeah, the impossibility of the law points to the superabundance of grace. Yeah, 100%. It's uh, the flip side of the of the same coin. Like, you know, it, so if you preach, you know, like I do think the, the best way to preach this is not to be a legalist about it. I think the best way to preach it is to lay into the impossibility of, mm-hmm. of saving the world and helping the world in this manner, of loving the world in this manner, and then pointing people to the one who can. Uh, as opposed to pointing to yourself or to your own behavior and ben- and, and and charitable work. Uh, if you're a preacher and you get up and start talking about how you are the Good Samaritan because you helped somebody sometime, uh, that's, you're, you're not doing anybody any, any favors because you're missing the whole point, which is let's get everybody laid low so that we can see a really good neighbor who loves in this way. Boom. <laughs> how, does that, how does that strike you, Callie? Like is somebody... Like, because I, I want to honor what you said a minute ago about like your OCD and and your your sort of mm. a theological upbringing sort of takes this and this parable mm. becomes a, a really sort of moralistic condemning tornado in your yeah. spirit. Like, how does that? How does all this strike you? When I realize that the parable is pointing to the impossibility of fulfilling the law, like my anxiety likes to focus strictly on the p- impossibility of it mm-hmm. rather than the fact that. God's grace covers it. Yeah. If yeah. that if that makes sense. So in some senses you're feeling the parable as it was intended. Yes. <laughs> That's and actually so, a good point. Yeah. And so like it's it's good that I'm feeling it as it is intended, but my brain goes to the extreme level and then doesn't recognize the full story, which is Jesus died for me. Mm. Mm. Well, that I mean, you know, that's why we need a preacher. Yeah, I know. <laughs> to that's... give us something that our brains wouldn't otherwise uh, um, uh, conjure, and right? and and that is why um, Mockingbird has been so important for me, and also church because I need to go and sit in the pew and hear the gospel every single day because I can't trust my brain to remember it. I mean, Lord knows I forget. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you don't need you don't need a OCD diagnosis to forget the gospel, <laughs> uh, uh, and even the guy up front sometimes from the pulpit needs a needs to preach to himself as a reminder yeah. too. So who who you? <laughs> well, I mean other preachers, not me. Other preachers. <laughs> okay. It's always about the other and not ourselves. It's that's always right. It's yes. always that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's those other preachers who don't know the gospel. Those other yes. preachers. <laughs> Certainly not thank you for listening to terrible parables you can find us on the web at ember.com audio production for terrible parables is provided by tj hester please leave us a rating or review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts we hope you've had a not so terrible time